Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode four of Tales from Zarahemla. I'm here with my good friend, Cherie Wilson. Cherie, you may recognize her from uh, from many shows. She was on Dallas for several years and then on Walker, Texas Ranger. Uh, she's a marvelous actress. And uh, we have, over the last few years, been working together uh, doing live theater. And I think you've really fallen in love with that, wouldn't you I say, Cherie? I certainly Shari? have. Oh, my <laughs> gosh. You've just opened up an entire new world for me because I've pretty much had my entire career in, you know, in film and television. And, um, you know, when you're studying theater and acting and, you know, and when you're, when I was 20 years old and 21 and whatever, <laughs> and studying in New York, I was doing theater then, but I literally have had my entire career in front of uh, the camera. And so to be playing Daisy Worthen um, <laughs> in this beautiful Pulitzer Prize winning play with you and Clarence, my my beautiful co-star and dear, dear friend. We have just, this has just been the most magical experience for me. And I cannot thank you enough for inviting me into your world. And we really, all three of us love doing it. And uh, oh. we, we just, every... Uh, Every month or so, when there's not a pandemic, we yes. uh, we travel to some city across the country and put on uh, the play Driving Miss Daisy, and uh, it has just been a joy. Uh, the audiences have been so appreciative, and it's such a wonderful story. And uh, so we uh, we're going to start booking that again soon. Now that we hope uh, COVID is is going to be dying out with uh, with new medicines that are coming along. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and and. I do want to say that we did successfully um, orchestrate and execute that we we could do it safely. We did yes. Cedar City. We just did just a couple month. of weeks ago. Oh, a few, <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, a couple of weeks ago, and mm-hmm. uh, just socially distance and wear masks and That's and right. laugh and laugh and yes. enjoy the arts. <laughs> Well, Cherie, thank you so much for joining me. I know you have such a busy schedule, and uh, I, I appreciate you listening to my stories. And uh, oh. so I, I'm going to – I think what we should do is go ahead and uh, and read this week's story, let our audience listen to it, and then we'll come back okay. and chat some more. Is that okay? That sounds perfect. All right. And here we go. And now the news from Zarahemla, a small town in southern Utah. Zimri Cadencia has lived on the outskirts of Zarahemla for almost 27 years. Son to a Roman Catholic Polish father and a Jewish Israeli mother, Zim was born in Cairo, where his parents were attending a conference when she went into early labor, but was raised in Boston. When he was a young teenager, two Mormon missionaries visited his family. His parents grilled the two young men and their subsequent replacements for months, and eventually joined the church. Zimri took even longer, but was finally satisfied that the church had what he needed and wanted, and so he joined too. 
Zim loves to point out to friends and family that he is the only Egyptian-born Israeli-slash-Polish Mormon that he knows of. Zimri is a Hebrew name meaning my music, and Zim lived up to his name. Zim became proficient at the violin, clarinet, and piano, but turned out to be a virtuoso on the cello. He was invited to join the Boston Pops Orchestra at age 19. It was there that he met a beautiful flautist named Tristina. Tristina Llewellyn from Schenectady, New York, was 23 at the time and far too concerned with furthering her career to pay any attention to Zim. He had asked her to lunch, but was so awkward and fumbling in his approach that she chose to tell him, I never eat lunch, and then spent her time practicing and satisfied herself with a yogurt and water. Reserved and courteous to a fault, Zim honored her first rebuff and didn't approach her again. But eventually, Tristina developed a talent crush for Zimri. It began when Zim was asked to play Max Brooks' Kol Nidre for the annual Pops by the Sea concert. Tristina's talent crush soon turned to a personal crush, then a deep and abiding love for a man that loved his art loved his family, loved his country, and loved his world. She embraced his religion as fully as she embraced him. For 21 years together, they performed as orchestra members, as studio musicians, and as composers. They raised two children and saw them go off to their own careers. The son, Gabriel, in the music industry as a sound engineer, and the daughter, Bronwyn, as a talent agent. But then Tristina was diagnosed with MS. The humidity of Boston became oppressive. They had both made a good living, and with royalties from albums and compositions, they decided it was time to retire to a drier climate. On a vacation a few years earlier, the beauties of Bryce Canyon and Zion's National Park had astounded them both. So, with a little investigation, they discovered the Valley of Zarahemla and settled in. Tristina is gone now, but the house still has her touches, her spirit, her music in its walls, so Zim will never leave here. In 1949, Lehigh Allred started a men's chorus in Zarahemla. It was tiny, really only a double quartet to begin with, but soon men from Escalante, Panguitch, Hatch, Antimony, and Tropic began to join. It lasted for almost 30 years until Lehigh passed and the chorus remained dormant for a decade. When Zim moved into the area, he learned of its history and revived the group. They meet twice a month to rehearse in the basement of the Zarahemla LDS Chapel and give concerts three times a year in the school gymnasium. It's mostly just family members that make up the audience, but now and then some other community members show up, and on occasion the odd tourist. Well, today, Zim was thinking of resigning as the group's director. All week he had been feeling tired, unappreciated, and hurt. He was also angry. But Zim rarely showed his emotions, if he could help it. He'd been at home, simmering, trying to decide exactly what he should do. In 
Meryl Hafen was at her usual spot at the diner, eating her gluten-free meal. Howard's diner was convenient for her because Howard was so gracious in specially preparing meals that fit her diet, but also because it was the place where most people in town would hang out at least once or twice a week. What better way to make contact with them and let them know why she wanted to be their mayor? Meryl was just beginning to dig into her turkey chili and cornbread when Cal Cinqua walked in. His legal name was Leroy Cinqua, but the name he was given by his mother a few weeks after his birth was Kalitaka, meaning spirit warrior who sings. He must have had quite a pair of lungs on him as an infant, because he was actually rather tone-deaf when it came to singing. Cal was born to parents from the Hopi tribe in Arizona. His father was killed while driving drunk when Cal was only three, and when he was seven, his troubled mother committed suicide. His grandmother was feeble, and the rest of his mother's clan was stretched to the limit, so Cal was put into foster care. A loving couple from Zarahemla took him in. His new guardians loved him and patiently taught him, but the young Cal was angry. In fact, he enjoyed being angry. It gave him an identity to be angry. Most of the other kids were accepting of his differences, but there were a couple of the boys at school that would poke fun at his darker skin and call him Tonto, or, if they were being particularly cruel, Squaw. Cal liked it because it helped feed his anger, and he turned that anger toward everyone, not just his tormentors. He soon earned his reputation as the town bully, at least among the children. Six-year-olds Merrill Hafen and Vera Rasmussen were two of the recipients of Cal's rage. After school, he would chase them on his bike, an old stingray that his foster parents' kids had used when they were young. He would call the girls names, throw sticks and dirt clods at them, and sometimes corner them, grab their power puff dolls, rip off the heads, and throw the dolls in the mud. One day, he chased the girls off the trail by the ditch bank and into a muddy field. Vera saw the mud and turned to skirt the edge of it, but Merrill was not so quick. She found herself in mud so deep that she couldn't get her feet out without leaving her shoes behind. Little Merrill didn't know what to do. These were her new winter shoes, and her mom would be upset. Vera ran home to get help. In her frustration, Merrill cried and then began to get cold and then peed herself. She hated being a mouse. It wasn't fair. In utter humiliation, she stepped out of the mud, leaving her shoes behind, never to be seen again, and began her long walk home. Her mother found her along the ditch bank and carried her the rest of the way, but the damage was done. This wouldn't stand. Little Merrill would have her revenge. A few days later, the battlefield was chosen. Running through the vacant lot across the street from Vera's house was a bike trail that had felt the tread of that stingray every afternoon for as long as Cal had been in Zarahemla. The trail passed over a small mound that the girls called a hill. It was there that they staged their offensive. 
In the freedom of a weekday morning, while Cowl was captive for a few hours at school, they began the task. Shovels in hand and sweatbands in place, they began to dig. The sun was getting higher and stage one was just about completed. As Vera struggled to finish work on the hole they had created, Merrill began to search for stage two. She found it, an old blanket lying under a patch of tumbleweeds. Carefully pulling it out and shaking off the daddy long legs, they placed the blanket over the hole, weighted the corners with rocks to keep it taut, and carefully covered it with dirt. Vera even took a few tufts of crabgrass and arranged them around the edges to make it look more natural. She then took some of the lighter sand and sprinkled it down the middle of the blanket to match the color of the hardened bike trail. Satisfied with the job well done, the girls ran to their respective homes for lunch, delighted at their genius. After what seemed a lifetime, 3.30 finally arrived. As Merrill hurriedly finished off a peanut butter sandwich, her mother marveled at her excitement about going back out to play. For some time, she had wanted to stay indoors in the afternoons and had been a bit mopey of late. Happy to see the change, Mom asked no questions. The school bus had already come. It would be only a moment before their victim came speeding along the trail. They hid behind the wheelbarrow and the rose bushes in Vera's front yard. Suddenly, they saw an alarming sight. The wind had come up, exposing a corner of the blanket. It flapped in the air like a white flag of surrender. Maybe there was time. Merrill dashed toward the hill to repair the damage, but as she reached the trail a few feet from their trap, the sun flashed off the frame of that stingray directly into her eyes. She froze. She couldn't move. The stingray was almost there. Cal's eyes met hers, and he gave her that jutted jaw half-smile of his. She could have called out a warning, but he wouldn't have listened. She watched silently as the front wheel of that stingray dropped into the pit. Cal's expression had changed as he flew by her, skidding to a stop in the rocks and weeds. The stingray bouncing was the only thing that brought life back to her legs as she jumped out of its path. All was quiet again, but the pit in Merrill's stomach had enlarged threefold. She knew she should run, but again found herself paralyzed. Cal slowly turned to look at her. She wanted to look back for help from Vera, but was afraid to take her eyes off him whom she thought would be her executioner. Cal's arm was scratched and bleeding as he got to his feet. He looked like he had been hurt. Merrill finally looked into his eyes to determine her fate and was surprised to see a tear. Seeing his face full of shock and fear, she concluded that Cal Cinqua was a mouse, just like her. Merrill suddenly felt ashamed. She turned to look for Vera, but Vera was back inside her house, watching through the safety of the living room window. In shock herself, Merrill picked up the bicycle and began walking it toward her own home, where she knew her mother would patch up Cal's arm. Cal walked stoically and silently behind. Cal seemed very different after that. He never troubled the girls again, nor anyone else as far as Merrill could tell. He went on to star on the track team in high school. 
and if she heard the story right, he'd gone to dental school, opened a practice in Flagstaff, and now spends two days a week on the reservation, offering mostly free dental work to the Hopi tribe. Well, there he was, a striking, tall, ringless man sitting at the counter. Why was that always the first thing she noticed in a man? She wasn't looking to get married. If it happened, it would happen in its own due time, and she didn't have to go out groveling for it. She was also surprised that she still felt pangs of guilt after all these years. Cal noticed her, too, but never looked her way. He had honed his skill at stoicism over the years. He had a vague memory of his birth father telling him that warriors don't cry. His mother never seemed to express her emotions as far as he could remember. Obviously, she had kept a lot bottled up. Cal knew that it probably wasn't healthy for him to do the same, but it helped him feel safe, and within his tribal culture seemed the thing to do. Cal was embarrassed to see Merrill. She was one of the few people who had ever seen him cry. Part of him despised her for that. Part of him adored her for standing up to him all those years ago. Lying in the dirt that way, the words of his stepfather managed to pierce his head. A man, a warrior, never treats a woman with disrespect. A little girl had shamed him, but he knew that it was his own fault. His juvenile spirit had felt justified in lashing out at everyone that had not suffered what he suffered. He'd thought they should be taught a lesson that their ideal of happy little families, or rather big families around here, was not a reality. They were fooling themselves and should stop pretending that life could or should be that good. As Merrill's mother patched his arm, little Cal could sense the hard-earned joy of living that permeated the Hafen's home, and Cal longed for it. It wasn't always a smooth path after that, but it was that moment that began Cal's efforts to honor his foster parents and try to understand and accept what they were teaching him. As an adult now, Cal marveled at the patience, love, and wisdom they had shown him. Not only did they unwearyingly forgive him again and again for fighting against the parameters they had set for him, but they also taught him principles of civility, love, personal responsibility, and the belief in something greater than himself. These loving people had also taken in two other foster children, a Sudanese girl, Marwa, 14 at the time, who had lost her family in the civil war in southern Sudan, and another seven-year-old Bosnian boy, Petar, who was orphaned during the Bosnian genocide in 1995. Petar only lived with them for about three years before an uncle sent for him to come home. Mom and Dad, yes, he had begun calling them that by then, would gather this ragtag family together every Monday night for laughter and love. The first Monday of every month was dedicated as Culture Night. Each month they would focus on a different culture. Mom would prepare dishes of the chosen ethnic group. Dad would read their folk tales and teach their songs. The kids were assigned, according to their ages and abilities, to tell a short history of the selected ethnicity. 
Cal still remembers songs from Zanzibar, Belgium, Iran, the Philippines, Argentina, and Trinidad. He, of course, only sings them to himself. He hears the pitches and melodies clearly in his head. They just don't come out of his mouth that way. And, of course, each child's own culture was not ignored. There were many lessons, food, and songs about Sudan, Bosnia, and the Hopi tribe. In fact, Mom and Dad regularly took Cal to the Hopi Cultural Center and made sure he participated in the festivals there. Cal and Mom together even tried to learn the intricacies of Hopi pottery. Cal and Dad together learned to grow the blue corn that the Hopi grow without irrigation. Cal knew that he had a blessed life. Merrill Hafen was now sitting over there, probably thinking that he was still the young bully she had known as a girl. She had grown into such a beautiful woman. He knew that he should apologize to her, but he wasn't sure how to do it without losing face again. He trusted himself to keep his emotions in check in almost any situation, but for some reason he wasn't certain he could control them around her. So he would just sit here and eat his grilled cheese special. Unexpectedly, Merrill was at his shoulder. Cal, she said, how nice to see you. When did you get back to town? Yes, Merrill, isn't it? He asked, feigning only a vague recognition. She then told him that she was sorry that they hadn't gotten to know each other better when they were younger, and would he care to come join her at her table so they could catch up? A reluctant Cal joined her and answered her questions about his life since high school. She quickly recapped her own adventures and then blurted out what she had really wanted to say. She was so sorry for what she had done to him when they were little. She hoped he would forgive her, and she hoped he hadn't been too hurt by her actions. Cal was thunderstruck. Merrill had tears in her eyes. This wasn't good. He was the one that needed to apologize, and now she had shamed him again. He turned away, afraid that his face might show his shame. Merrill misread his intention and apologized again for interrupting his day. A man, a warrior, never treats a woman with disrespect. No, I'm sorry, he declared. It is I that must beg your forgiveness for mistreating you all those years ago and for disrespecting you just now. He had said it, and his face was passive, no tears to be seen. But then, suddenly, Merrill's eyes began to overflow, and she touched his hand on the table. Cal had to turn away again as he felt moisture in his own eyes. Merrill understood this time, and was wise enough to allow Cal a moment to reestablish his control. They then spoke together about their families, their lives, their goals, and, of course, the latest chatter about Zarahemla. Cal explained that he'd only arrived in town an hour ago and hadn't stopped at home yet. His dad didn't know he was here. Merrill took a moment to fill Cal in on what was happening to his dad. Zimri Cadencia was still livid. This is what he did. 
He never lashed out at anyone, but he did swim in his anger when it came until he could learn something from it. That's why he would secrete himself away during this ritual. He first noticed his pattern in dealing with anger when his Tristina died. He was enraged. At God, at Tristina, at himself, maybe all three, he wasn't sure. But he didn't try to dispel the emotion because it seemed, oddly, to give him comfort for a time. He needed to hold on to the anger until he could restore his purpose and identity. What this time began his bout of passionate introspection was his meeting with the men's chorus board last week in which he laid out his plans for the Christmas concert. He wanted a truly multicultural experience for his singers and his audience. He wanted to include the French carol Petit Papa Noel, the Mexican Las Posadas, the Italian Tuscende dalle Stelle, the Negro spirituals Go Tell It on the Mountain and Mary Don't You Weep, Germany's Eau du Froliche, and a couple of traditional English hymns, and he also wanted to explore a Paiute stick game song that isn't exactly a Christmas song, but would work in the life celebration that this concert was meant to be. It would be a real challenge for this group to get down all of the rhythms and pronunciations from this menagerie, but he was confident that they could do them all well. Walter Brinkerhoff simply said, We can't do that. Take the Paiute song off the list. You can't sing a Native American song. You're not a Native American. Now, I suppose you could consider having me sing it, since I am 132nd Navajo on my mother's side. But, no, I'm fairly sure they would take offense at that as well. So, no, no Native American songs. Walter was a communications professor at Dixie State and the self-appointed PC enforcer in Zarahemla. Anytime he thought that someone in or outside of the community might be offended by something someone said or did in Zarahemla, he felt it his duty to point it out and seek a remedy. He had even gone so far as to propose a new city ordinance that would allot fines for anyone within the city limits using potentially offensive language. The ordinance proposal recognized that the list of words would have to be updated semi-annually since minority groups of all kinds were continually revising which words could potentially cause them offense. Along with the ordinance, he proposed monthly training seminars for all citizens willing to participate, which would help to dispel local ignorance about what is now acceptable language. Walter was insistent that any attempt at using a Native American song would alienate and offend all Native Americans in the area, and so we must not consider performing it. Zim tried explaining that this wasn't a sacred ceremonial song, but a light-hearted folk song intended to bring luck to someone gambling at sticks, and that he planned to ask Paiute Councilwoman Karina Wood to come teach it to them. But Walter wouldn't listen. Instead, he doubled down his indignation, insisting that white people should not be usurping any music that belonged to non-white cultures because we haven't the capacity to fully understand the anguish and plight of their history and the roots of their music. So the spirituals were out too, even though they have been part of every high school Christmas concert for the past hundred years. The Mexican song had to go, 
And Walter also suggested that we even rethink the German song, since it might offend some of our World War II veterans. Once it was pointed out that Hunter Jackson was the only veteran left from that war, and that Hunter no longer came out to the concerts, Walter relented on that one point. But he did insist that Zim rethink the whole concert. Following the meeting, Zim replayed the confrontation in his head, and, as always, he was able to articulate his side of it so much better on his walk home than when actually facing his challenger. They had tabled the discussion for a week. During that week, Zim had cycled through his emotional journey from despotism in imagining himself reigning supreme over the whole group, insisting that he started this whole thing and they would do what he said or they could leave, to martyrdom in which he saw himself resigning in front of the whole chorus with much lamentation and gnashing of teeth from the group. He had kept to himself the whole week, knowing that in this small town just about everyone would know what had happened by now, and he didn't want any stares or any advice. He was walking to the meeting now, still not completely sure what he was going to do. He wanted to tell them all that, in his experience, music was a universal language that could unite cultures, that could heat the fire beneath the melting pot that made this country so great. But he was pretty sure he would just trip over his words and not achieve the eloquence he heard in his head. He wanted to explain that when he worked at the Boston Pops, they had had a race-blind approach to most of their concerts. He remembered recording an album starring the great Australian baritone John Shaw of music from around the world that included Deep River. No one seemed to mind that Shaw wasn't black, nor that most of the orchestra wasn't black, so long as they did their best to respect the passion, the honor to deity, the veneration of suffering, and the self-reflection that the song contained. Was there any way to really know completely the experiences of others? All art was supposed to be about helping us achieve some level of empathy, wasn't it? But that didn't mean that empathy would be absolute. Zim's own concerto, which he entitled Survival, was about his mother's experience as a teenager in Auschwitz. He never expected that only Jewish musicians should be allowed to perform it, or that only members of his tribe would be able to fully comprehend it. The orchestras that performed the piece never fully understood the depth of anguish, self-doubt, and desperation to hear God's voice that he had tried to express in his music, just as he had only partly understood the depth of the emotions his mother felt about it. But that didn't mean he didn't want them to try. The whole purpose of art is to share our cultures, share our stories, so that we can learn to understand one another. He wanted everyone to play his concerto, or hear it, and gain as much understanding as they were capable of at that moment in their lives. That was how his music could bring people with widely different experiences to a common understanding. But few people knew about his life before Zarahemla, and he was reluctant to talk about that. He wanted to tell them that the reason he chose to live in Zarahemla was that love had always been the guide for the people's choices and interactions with each other, not the unforgiving, intolerant, ever-changing rules of political correctness gurus. 
But he knew that Walter was a good man and was just following his own conscience, so he couldn't bring himself to attack Walter for his well-intentioned viewpoints. As he approached the meeting house, he concluded that his best course of action would be to just graciously thank everyone for supporting him over the years, but that he really wanted to spend some time now with his grandchildren and soon-to-be great-grandchild back in Massachusetts. They would need to look for another choral leader, but he hoped they would not let the traditions die away. However, as he entered the room, he saw Walter smiling broadly at him. The whole group was smiling and shaking his hand, all glad to see him and assuring him that they thought they had found the perfect solution. Your son came to see me, Walter announced. My son, answered Zim, all the way from Massachusetts? No, no, Cal is in town. He came to my home this afternoon and called me a bully. Some kid you got there, Zim. Zim was dumbfounded. Kalataka was home? Why hadn't he come to see him? Cal had shared with Walter the kind of upbringing he had received at the hands of Zim and assured him that Zim would never dishonor anyone's heritage. And it gave Walter an idea. Why not really mix things up? Get Ron Tanner to get his old Bar T Wranglers cowboy singers back together and ask them to sing the Paiute stick game song. What? thought Zim. Then, continued Walter, see if that Samoan family that moved in near Tropic could come over and sing the old John Denver song, Christmas for Cowboys. The Paiute royalty girls could come sing something very British, like God Rest Ye Merry Gentlemen. Cleavon Carter and his wife Clarissa over an antimony, she sang opera when she was at Spelman College, could sing I'll Be Home for Christmas, and we white boys can sing Merry Don't You Weep, and I suppose we can all sing the German number if you really want to. What do you think? Zim smiled, happy to know that he was still among friends. Loonies, one and all, but friends nonetheless. And that's the news from Zarahemla, where love and laughter are served at every meal, where safe sex means slipping on a wedding ring, and where everyone is a best friend. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. <laughs> I mean, you, you, have, you have just created a melting pot of ethnicities in, in, in like um, the United Nations of <laughs> characters. It's just fantastic. I mean, talk about packing so much humanity and and so many cultures into one story. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm marveled, <laughs> Richard, you just, uh, you really, what a gift you have. Because well, thank you. This was really special. I appreciate about, that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'll, I'll tell you the, the way this story came about uh, uh-huh. is, you know, there's there's a little bit of me in in all the characters I create. I think you know. Of course. <laughs> and uh, are you a Hopi tribe member? I <laughs> know I'm not that, but uh, but you are. <laughs> but, but I uh, I'm fascinated by their culture, you know. So, yes. but I had a a colleague that um, 
uh, sort of shamed me uh, once for oh. we were putting on a, a, a show and having a little sing along with the audience. And I sang with with them and had them sing with me uh, a song that we always used to sing growing up when when my family would travel, we'd all pile into the station wagon. There were eight of us kids, you know, it was just packed. Oh my goodness. <laughs> we'd, we'd travel down the highway and my dad would sing and we'd sing along and we'd sing in like eight to 10 part harmonies, you know, and just have a I great time. It was gorgeous. Oh, it was wonderful. And one of the songs we sang uh, was Swing Low, Sweet Chariot. Uh-huh. It was just a wonderful one to harmonize with. And it uh, oh. it really, I loved the spirituals because it really helped me understand that culture a little bit and, and fascinated me by it, right? Well, I sang that and he shamed me saying it was uh, not politically correct and white people can't sing that song. And I was, oh. I was livid. <laughs> I, was, oh, I, I wasn't sure what to do with my anger for a while. And uh, so I sort of turned it to writing this story. <laughs> well, that's and, the uh, most beautiful way to <laughs> express your anger by turning it into some magical piece of art. Right. And, yeah. and um, talk about art giving you your level of empathy. Um, <laughs> no. This is that's interesting. But I, I think we just go too far with our political correctness, and and oh. and that, and so we we block that empathy for each other that we're supposed to be learning by sharing our cultures, and instead we're alienating people from them. And I, exactly. I worry about that. I don't yeah. understand what is going on these days, and I'm sorry. I hope there's a really young audience listening because it feels like everybody is offended by everything. Right. That you're supposed to, oh, that's not politically correct. Oh, you're going to offend this group. You'll offend that group. And it's ridiculous. That's not what art is. <laughs> yeah. And I don't want, uh, you know, I don't yeah. want our discussion to turn into a political forum, but no, it, it is. not at all. It, it is. But I love uh, that you worrisome. Gave, <laughs> No, but you've really, you have expressed an issue and a problem and and the feelings that come up around it and yet you've transcended because art does give you the levels of empathy and you're right the purpose of art is to share it with every culture and everyone and that's what makes it so universal i'm glad you got that from the story <laughs> i great. really did yeah. i did and i love that these guys started out as bullies and then, you know, and here the bully who turned out to be a little mouse goes and tells Walter that he's been a bully. Right. <laughs> and the whole resolution gets tied back together. And just, uh, I, I, I really loved the sweetness of, of um, Cal and Meryl. I mean, how terrible he was to those girls and then they got him back and boy they got him good <laughs> uh, and uh and just how years later they still had that little tugging in their hearts that they both wanted the other one to know how sorry they were yes. now that that is beautiful it's beautiful oh, thank you yeah there's some there's some truth in that story too. I was uh, oh, when I was me, me. <laughs> just five or six. Uh, we had a bully in our neighborhood, and he he terrorized us and chased us into the mud, just like the girls. And uh, and so uh, 
I, I I'm sort of sort of chagrined that I really did this, but we we actually dug that hole in the bike path. <gasps> you did. <laughs> we, we did, and uh, oh, so it, it still it still shocks me that I, such a young boy like me would do something you were that quite mischievous. so so cruel. Yeah. <laughs> so. And did he uh, really wreck his bike? And he did. Another friend of ours, a little older, that was going to school was riding right after him. And the bully hit it first, and then our friend hit it after, oh, and man. held onto his bike and landed right on top of the bully with with it. And uh, oh. they both got up a little, uh, a little shaken, and but they were all right, you know. I mean, we didn't yeah. cause any, <laughs> any no real damage. Bones. No. Okay. Well. <laughs> but it's 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 something I would I would never treat someone that way as an adult. But I, I there's You're there's the a little viciousness. I know. <laughs> children i think so well mm. you know there is something to be said though that children are much more raw emotions they haven't learned to right. like, check themselves they're they're just like you know babies are happy or babies are hungry and they cry or children are you know if if you're being bullied or terrorized i i i understand that there's much more raw emotion that you mm. don't have as you learn to control yourself and, right. and refine your your <laughs> ac actions as you age, which is a good thing. But I, yeah. I can believe I can believe that you would, you know, resort to I've had it. I'm not taking it anymore. <laughs> That's right. Well, That's so funny. Cherie, what uh, what projects have you got coming up in your life? Oh my goodness. I have such, ex well, except on top of can't wait. I can't wait to get back in the theaters once we open again. And 2021, I think is going to, this ridiculous pandemic is going to go away. And um, I'm praying with the help of all these great meds and, mm -hmm. and treatments. But um, I actually have a new, group out of Dallas, Texas, that is stepped up and we're getting paperwork tomorrow. How timely is this? On financing of my next three films. Oh, wonderful. And I've got a faith-based film called I, John. It's all about miracles, about what would happen if John the Apostle were still alive today mm. and he's the wandering Jew walking right walking the world and that he is you know it's a what if maybe how would he impact people's lives it's right. a really special spiritual little story I've got a true story that is a not so it's, it's very triumphant in the end but it is a true story about um a case that happened in south carolina it's called the truth sayers and um it's really about taking a pedophile off the streets finally after he'd been abusing hmm. these children for almost 40 years so a darker and story but with a, a, with a happy ending <laughs> with a very happy ending That's good. yes mm -hmm. and um and I have this other true story um, that we're hoping to get to produce, and it's called Fear We Women. And it is the true story about this photographer who went over to Syria to shoot what was happening over there. And she found that 
who was fighting the war were just young girls. They were children. Mm. And because most of their parents had, their fathers and brothers had been killed by ISIS and this and that. And she documented this entire courageous war. And it's going to be a high action entertainment. It's all women. It's very powerful. And it's very true. And so mm. I've got some great true stories. I've got some faith-based. I've got, you know, I'm actually working on a, a pilot for a TV series to be shot in Dallas. So I've got tons of irons in the fire. I just oh, can't wait to great. do them all. <laughs> yeah, I, I remember you were working on a TV series and then the, the pandemic yes, hit. So <laughs> It did. Yeah. And TV is one of the hardest things because you're changing out characters week after week. It's not right. like you can fly your cast in and have them quarantined for two weeks and then just stay like a mash unit until the job is done. So it's going to be a little trickier and probably a little longer to get the television series up and safely shooting. Right. But I know it's going to happen. Well, good. That's all exciting. And It and, is. And I'll be oh, calling you. Yes. Keep me in mind for all oh, projects. Oh, trust me. You've got such a range of characters in you. I know that. So, uh, yes. Well, I will definitely be uh, calling you to uh, come play a part. Well, thank you so much, Sri, for for joining me today. This has been delightful. Oh, and, oh uh, it's so wonderful! I can't wait till the next story comes out. <laughs> well, I'm working on it, so okay. uh, we'll we'll get it out soon. But and thank you all for listening today, and yes. uh, we'll uh, keep keep telling your own stories. Please find a way to mm. to tell them not the not the angry ranting that so many people are encouraged to do, but tell your stories so that we can go on a journey with you and learn more about you and uh have a great uh, have a great life and a great a safe life in the pandemic until uh, until next time uh Amen. thank you and goodbye everybody <laughs>